The way this uh, Q&A is going to work, I'm going to have a few prepared questions for our panel today, and then we'll open it up to opportunities with you if you have questions. Uh, you can share, I'll ask for a raise of hands, I'll listen to your questions. I will repeat your questions so that they can hear it, but also for our recording so everyone will be able to hear it in, in perpetuity. And if you want to go back and listen to all this stuff, we will be posting it up on our website at songtime.com. So it's not just for you, but also for your friends and those in your community that you can share this content with. So. Uh, with that going forward, uh, the, question, the question that's really pressing upon my heart over the course of this entire event, and this is a question for all three of you, I want to hear from each of you in this answer. Um, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, this uh, call for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it says to teach our children diligently, to teach them. How do we teach somebody to love something? How do you actually teach love, and, and this is really the heart of, of, of Ted's last message on, on presenting the glory of God, but I, I want to hear from each and every one of you concisely, what are some practical ways that we can actually teach children or teach anyone to love something, especially to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? So, uh, James, why don't we get started with you? Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I think the, the real issue is, as parents, grandparents, adults, even someone in the church who may just be sitting as a parishioner, if you yourself embrace God and the passion of who God is and live that holy and visible to others around you, they will see because, in fact, you are God extended. I mean, we are God extended. There's nothing that we can do about that but to show his glory. And that's how you get to love. Because if, if children, adolescents particularly, if they don't see that in us, they will never come to fully embrace it. Because there are two things to that. Your own passion to God and your relationship to them as adolescents. It's in the relationship that they understand that. I couldn't hear everything that our brother said, but I, I think I say 100% I agree with you. I believe that the way we uh, show our children how to love God is loving God ourselves. And we love God ourselves as we use all the means of grace that God has given us in his word, the preaching of his word, uh, fellowship with God's people, reading his word, prayer, meditation on his word. These are all the means of drawing near to God. And when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. That's a relationship of love. And so as we do that ourselves, and we're like that giant sponge that Ted talked about, we get it all over the people we're around. So modeling love, showing love is the greatest way to teach love. I love that passage you quoted, uh, Adam, uh, in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then it says, uh, these things shall be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. 
Whatever's on your heart, you will impress on your children. Your children will leave your house one day, set out and launch in life, knowing what makes you tick. And, uh, you know, whatever you, whatever makes you tick, you will have impressed on them. And so if we, if we are delighting ourselves in God, that's what our kids are going to pick up. So it's about modeling that's right. that you're talking about. It's where we're modeling delight in God. It's inevitable they're going to see that and hear that. And uh, it's not a curriculum as much as a life. That's right. Sticking with you, Ted, um, with that principle where Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. I think, I think in a lot of cases, the distraction of the the confusion, I think, of the idols of our own heart are that we have put other things more important. Education, we've put sports, we want them to succeed, we want them to have a social life, we don't want to pull them out of the public school even though it might be a danger to them because we want to make sure that they're, they're socializing, they have friends and they have community and they have all these other things developing. Um, how do we guard against that without removing them from sports entirely, without creating a bubble? How do we actually shepherd them to seek first the kingdom of God? Ted. Ted, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that I always encourage people with when I was a pastor is make a decision tree before you sign the uh, okay for the Little League team, you know, and sign them up for the Little League team. Make a decision tree where you're thinking through what are they asking for in commitment from me? What kind of fundraising are they going to want me to do? Uh, what, when are the practices? How long are the practices? When are the games played? So you're asking yourself a lot of important questions and evaluating whether this is a commitment you can make rather than getting involved without asking any questions and then only discovering later what the cost is. So you count the cost like the guy it says in the uh, Gospels that builds a house and he first lays it out and he decides whether or not he can finish it. So I think we have to thoughtfully make those decisions and that may mean that you don't end up with your kids playing four sports in a year. Uh, maybe you're, you're more selective. And depending on how many kids in the family, is it going to require more selectivity? So I think being wise and thoughtful and intentional the way you make those choices, because so often in life, uh, the good things in life are the enemies of the best things in life. And we don't want to just pursue those good things at the expense of the best things. Uh, this question's for uh, Jim. The, there's a challenge right now with uh, children who are either on the spectrum, have severe ADHD, they have impulse control. Uh, a lot of this stuff sounds great in a, in a vacuum. Uh, yeah, this is perfect. We can raise our perfect children to love and respect us. But when our children are struggling with, with uh, addictions to screens, with with challenges that are emotional as well as attention deficit and those on the spectrum or even with Down syndrome, how do you, how do you, all of that we've been learning from the trips here trickle down into someone who actually has a chemical challenge or a chemical imbalance? Well, I think it's more than just the issues that you've raised, even for those who have significant emotional issues, anxiety, depression, those sorts of things, and kids, um, that we have to be alerted as to what it is that we talk about with them. They're very sensitive to the environment. They're very, their bodies are different 
biochemically. They respond differently, particularly highly sensitive children. Um, there are very unique ways of realizing that certain sounds, certain sights, certain smells, uh, whatever, will trigger the emotional content inside where they're not able to hear anymore. And so as we think about uh, how we present the gospel particularly, we recognize that it has to be done very simple, not overstated. I think the, the words that uh, Marge said many times, it was, one of you said it, don't over talk, right? You don't overwhelm the children with all the information. You give them short, specific information so that they can internalize it. And so it may take you a little bit longer to get to the end point, but that's how you're going to get there. Uh, this next question is for Ted and, and uh, Margie. In the subject, we've talked a little bit about family devotions, uh, family worship. And we kind of, I think we tend to talk about this kind of like we talk about the gospel. We talk about the gospel, we don't actually articulate the gospel. So what does family worship actually look like? That's the first question, this is a two-parter. And how can it actually be implemented if it hasn't already been set into patterns of the family? <laughs> well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, if you think about family worship in the simplest ways, you think read, pray, sing. If you sing together, you know, I learned to play four chords on a guitar in the key of D. With the capo, you can sing almost any song with those four chords. So I would, you know, and, and uh, once the kids were grown, I haven't touched a guitar since. But it was just a way to have rhythm and, and uh, chords so we could sing together at family worship. Uh, so singing, singing God's praise together, reading the Bible, praying together. Pray about whatever the kids are interested in. We prayed for six, sick dogs and cats. We prayed for serious things. You know, um, not that, I mean, well, we, the sick dogs and cats were serious for our kids. But nothing's too trivial to take to God in prayer. And uh, so praying, reading, praying, singing together. You can add to that Bible memory. If you want to teach your kids to memorize the Bible, we found that if we just memorized, we started memorizing Psalms, big Psalms, like Psalm 23, Psalm 1, you know, uh, Psalm 100, Psalm 150. Uh, but we found that if we read the Psalm every day in family worship, within a week, our kids would know it by heart. Mm -hmm. And a month later, Margie and I could know it too. So it, uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, it's really easy with children to memorize, just simply it doesn't take any real effort or you're quizzing them. You just read the passage every single day and they're going to memorize it. Uh, so those things, I think, uh, and then you want to kind of move with your kids. When our kids were little, we used to act out devotions. I mean, we climbed under the table and we were David in the caves of Adullam with his men, you know, hiding from Saul. And, uh, you know, I could make a pretty impressive Goliath standing on the kitchen table. Uh, I was nearly nine feet tall. Uh, but you can, uh, you know, when they're real little, we acted things out. As they got older, it was more abstract and less concrete. But I think uh, just doing things, kind of tracking with their ages, and, and consistency in doing it is just a big deal too. Because 
You know, I always think God gave us a 24-hour day. Surely in 24 hours we have 10 minutes we can spend reading the God and praying with our kids. We just have to organize a time of day when we do it. We found after the evening meal was the best time for us. What was the second part of the question? I think, I think that was it. How to get started with it and really, I'm glad you mentioned how to maintain it, but Margie, I mean, in the, in the context of doing this, I mean, you had a husband who wrote the book on this subject, so, you know, how did you as a wife and for single mothers and for those who have husbands that aren't believers, how can wives encourage and foster this in the home? You know, you, you obviously had the perfect scenario, right? You, <laughs> Uh, what's it like being married to the perfect man? That's the real question I want to ask. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Nearly perfect. <laughs> I think uh, this is a, a very serious question, I think, for moms whose husbands aren't believers or husbands who profess faith but are not faithful in those ways and for single moms. And I, I really want to encourage you that it's possible for you to do this. There's so many resources uh, for parents. And we read the narratives to our children when they were young, uh, both from God's Word and from collections of, of narratives from God's Word, and tried to encourage the children with the heroes of the faith and, and what made them. They weren't perfect. Now you look like you look at David. He's not a perfect man, uh, but he was a friend of God. And so, uh, trying to encourage the children with the uh, with the narratives of the Scripture when they were in their middle middle years, we uh, read and took apart and put back together the epistles, those finely tuned arguments. Because as our brother said, that's when they're all attorneys. And uh, so that was wonderful because they were interactive. And then when our kids were in high school, uh, we read the prophets. <laughs> What's the message of the prophets? <laughs> and so we wanted to acquaint them with the fact that this God is a serious God. He's a loving Heavenly Father to everyone who puts their hope in Him. And moms who don't have the encouragement of husbands who are working with you, seek out people in your church who can encourage you and pray with you and help you to find resources. But don't shrink from the task. Go for it and pray and ask God to help you each day to find those few moments to interact with your children. And God will bring fruit from that. Uh, Jim, this question is for you, and I think this is kind of a very pressing question. If, if someone's experienced this, or if they have the, the inkling that it could happen to them in the future, that their child comes up to them and says, I no longer want to be a boy, I want to be a girl. Or I, you can't refer to me by, by my previous name, now you need to call me this. The children is asserting control and putting that uh, demand on their parents. Um, that's difficult and probably the most difficult question, I think, for this whole panel, but how do, how do parents and even grandparents respond or even approach the conversation with, without uh, conceding uh, to those sort of demands? Unfortunately, uh, in today's world, any kind of sexual doubt, identity doubt, is immediately pounced upon by the curriculum, by the schools, public schools particularly, to have the child express it to its fullest. They have the right, if you will, 
to have the say of what their body is going to be. I'm not quite sure I agree with that, but it's one of the things that has become so prevalent and I think in the long run is going to really be the downfall of our American country. Because if you look at countries in Europe that have gone this direction, they have become less productive, they have increase in suicide, they have increase in lethargy, they have very, very little economy to speak of that cannot be raised. And so I think it, it, it's sort of a prophetic issue here. I mean, uh, this is very serious and uh, very, uh, very remarkable. Uh, my son uh, has a fellow high school student when he was at LCA. She became a doc. And uh, they have a five-year-old child. And one day the five-year-old said to the mother, um, I no longer want to be a boy, I want to be a girl. I, I want to do girl things. This is five. Now, of course, in public school, it's been encouraged, and so that's gone on. And they have had a very difficult time uh, trying to find the necessary therapeutic input that would follow their ideas, their values, their Christian morals as to what this really represents. Very difficult. And as a result of this, the child has now, is now eight years old, has changed his name to a girl's name, has been dressing as a girl for the last two years, and the parents weep continuously in their room together at night, praying as to how this is going to come about to change. It, it's very difficult, it's very difficult, because freedom of expression has become the norm and that's the problem. Now, I can only say clinically, because that's what my work and my world has been. Back in 1983 or 84, I had a call from a female who said that she was having significant problems. And so I talked and came in. When I met the person in the waiting room, she stood up to be 6'4", with heels, bleached hair, fully made up, but clearly features of a man. And we went in the room and sat and talked. What is it that's going on for you? And she, he, went on to say that he went through a full sex change. Full. And he was now trying to live out an evangelical life. She was trying to live out an evangelical life. Churches were not accepting of her change. Churches were isolating and alienating her. Her stature was overwhelming to begin with, and it just wasn't put 
in the right place. No one had come alongside to talk about the difficulties of what this would mean realistically if change had occurred. And I think that's one of the greatest problems. When we see people, children, who are talking about wanting to change their sexual identity, many times it's a threat to us. And we don't want to talk, we tend to move away from them. Where we are entreated by Christ to come around them, to talk with them, to deal with their struggle, to know exactly what it is that they're working with and, and dealing with. But in a lot of ways, it becomes a threat. And so if you find yourself being threatened by those issues, get to understand what the threat is, because you may be the very person that you need to come around to help them. Thank you. I want to open it now to anyone in the audience that might have a question for our panel. I'm sure you've been ruminating all day with questions, thoughts, anyone? Go ahead. So the question is, with kids in a wide range from 11 to 19 or even more than that, uh, if you have elementary and high school students in the same household, how do you approach, I struggle with this with our, our children's program. We have the older kids and the little kids all sitting together for the same Bible lesson. The older kids are rolling their eyes, right, to the illustrations I'm using. Uh, how, do, how do you, Ted, this is a good question for you, I think, to cover. Um, how do you address an audience of children that are in a wide range, especially when it comes to family devotions? I think in general, I think we want to have our our uh, family worship be accessible to the older ones rather than the younger ones because the younger ones will want to reach up to the older ones. The older ones will not be willing to reach down to the younger ones. So by having it addressed to the older ones, uh, the younger kids are going to want to reach up to understand what the older people are understanding. It doesn't work in the other direction. The other thing is I think uh, <clears throat> we found that we had uh, an open home ministry uh, 40 years ago and uh, 45 years ago, and we, uh, we had adults living with us. Uh, they were not all Christians. They were welcome to live with us. One of our house rules was that you join us for dinner at night and for family worship after dinner. You don't have to say anything, but you need to be present. But uh, we were able to have devotions in that context, and we just asked them, you know, uh, to give us the courtesy of being there with us and to uh, at least uh, participate by their presence. So I think that's how I would appeal to an, an older child who does, may not even profess faith to say to them, uh, this is something we want to do as a family and uh, we're asking you to work with us here and to cooperate with us and at least participate on the level of being there and being present, not rolling your eyes. And uh, uh, you know, trusting God to work through them and uh, in them. And we found that as we did that, Many of these uh, young adults who were not Christians came to faith in Christ because they were, they were drawn in uh, to it. So I think uh, that's, those are my thoughts. Um, I think another thing you might consider is, especially if you have a child who's resistant to the, that age range, is to consider doing a, a on the side uh, time with that child. Uh, talking to them particularly about questions they may have or 
problems that they have with, with Christianity or, or questions they have. Uh, sometimes that takes the edge off of them feeling, I don't want to participate. Another thing you can do is involve them, ask them to read. Uh, uh, ask them, if, if you've got a musician, <laughs> ask them to play the guitar or, uh, or whatever. But uh, I think uh, trying to have, have your regular family worship that covers everyone, but noticing when you need, have someone who needs that extra attention that could be done at another time. Any other questions? Over here. I, I hear the question. How, the question is, when you have, you're raising your kids, you're not doing so in a vacuum, right? Even if you put them in a Christian school and you take them to a Christian church, they're going to be mingling and interacting with Christians of all uh, different communities that have different standards. And they're going to come home with that dreaded question, well, Jimmy's parents let him do this, so, <laughs> right? So how do you handle that? Uh, Jim, why don't we, since I said Jimmy, why don't, why don't we start with you? That's interesting you said that. That was one of my nicknames. Okay. Um, it all depends on how much you have explained the differences of what your values are and what other people may have as values. So if you present the Christian values of your family to your kids, they know that there are certain areas that are important to the family and to them and to you as parents. They want to respect that. The problem is if you don't talk about the differences that are outside of that sphere, then they're going to be taken aback by what they see or hear outside of there. And so they're always wanting to compare. Always looks better out there than it does in here. Right? That's, that's always the case. And that's why you, you explain to them that difference and what it means for them. I think with this as well, it's an opportunity for us to teach kids that the, to abstract. As you were talking about in your message on adolescence, kids start to abstract ideas. They can understand, start to understand nuances, understand that these are our rules and not everyone may share our same rules, but you need to learn and respect that these are rules that we're raising you under. But uh, Ted, you, you talk about this, I'm sure as well, in the context of you know, helping the kids understand, as, as Jim was saying, that these, these values are a reflection of, of our heart in some way. Right, and I think you know, even as Jim was saying, you know, Talking about your values and the basis for the decisions that you've made as a family is so important, but also not being negatively critical of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you can say to your kids, you know what? Those folks, they love God and they love their kids and they're doing the best they can do. And that's fine. That's between them and the Lord. I'm not Jimmy's dad, but I'm your dad. And so this is what we're going to do. They've made a different choice, and we're not going to judge them for their choice. That, that's something between them and the Lord. And, and uh, we don't all have to be in lockstep agreement with one another to love each other and to, to be part of the same church. And so I think uh, you know, helping disabuse your kids of the idea there's going to be this uniformity in the church that looks like everyone came out of the same plastic extrusion press. I mean, we, you know, there are going to be differences. We're going to have sensibilities in different locations. We can have our convictions, hold them tenaciously, 
and yet have a heart of charity toward brothers and sisters who don't have the same convictions and teach our children, that's fine. That's between them and the Lord. That's not our worry. You are my worry. And I used to appeal to my kids. One of the things I used to do to them is I'd say, you know, I know they've made that choice and I think they've made it before the Lord and they're doing the best they can do and that's fine. Uh, I feel deeply convicted within my own spirit that it would be wrong for us to do that as a family. Surely you would not ask me to ignore uh, my convictions in order to accommodate you. You wouldn't ask me to do that, would you? <laughs> because kids at that age, they're very much, I want to have my convictions. I want my convictions to be respected. That's all I'm asking you to do, honey. Just respect my convictions. Yeah. Um, you said you had a second question here. We only have the time for a few more, but so how do you discipline someone who has ADHD, so this is a good question for you, Jim. How do you discipline somebody who's wrong? They need to understand their boundaries and they understand what's right and what's wrong. And especially if two kids, one with a severe problem and one who's not, uh, how do you deal with them especially differently? You get all the tough questions. <laughs> Each child is different, regardless of whether they have ADHD or not. And you have to deal with each child differently. Um, and so in that case, if they have ADHD, you want to be able to confine them to a particular area so they're not terribly distracted. But ADHD is not only the environmental distraction, it's also the internal distraction. And that's where most of it comes from. From that vantage point, <clears throat> now I'm going to get into medicine, but there is medication that you can help a child with that's very helpful so that they can focus. And the more that you can help the child focus with some medication, the better they're going to be able to understand and comply to what it is that needs to be complied to. If, it's not, if you don't, you're going to find yourself always going after them, and after a while you become frustrated, as they are frustrated, and communication will break down immediately. Just a few more questions I saw hand here. Yeah, no. let, me, let me kind of summarize the question here. Uh, how do you handle that and approach that? And Jim, this will, I guess will be for you as well. Mm. In the context of having a child that's very young that's drawn towards uh, things of the opposite gender. Or yeah. feminine, a boy that's drawn. I have to say, I, was, I grew up with two older sisters. Uh, I thought, you know, girls had more attention, so I wanted to do the girl things too, right? <laughs> so the question is, at, at a young age, where they're showing these things, I think parents are concerned that they might make a misstep and, and encourage that behavior or, or cause a negative to where that, courage, that behavior is actually flamed enhanced, enhanced in some way. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, the reason why they ask you not to discourage a child from choosing one or the other and letting them play out their interest is the theory behind that is that if you make something not attractive, in other words, you don't want them to go for that, that's the very thing they're going to want to go for. It's like, every, like everybody says, no, you shouldn't be doing this, and the very thing is you do. I mean, someone says, don't touch the hot stove, and you want to find out what goes on, what it hurts, it hurts. They touch the hot stove. So the issue there 
is that you need to give options of direction. You don't just let the child be unidirectional or self-directed or emotionally directed. You want the child to be able to engage, depending on how old they are, four, yeah. So at that point, the very concrete thinking. And so you want to help and engage the child with concrete options that are there, not just let them play out the girl things. So there are a variety of things that you'll let them do, not just go for the girls. Uh, that's a big mistake that we do in today's psychotherapy uh, or even psychological thought. Uh, it's a real problem. Yeah, but that's what you do. We have room for one more question, and I'm sorry I can't get to everyone. Uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to talk to our panel after our uh, time here is up. But uh, one more question over here. Yeah, this is, I think, a growing concern in our culture today, so to repeat the question. So uh, this is perfect for you, Margie. <laughs> it's, it's not too late. Let me just say that. Um, the question is, for kids that are out of the home, under, out from under the jurisdiction of the parents, and they've chosen a lifestyle that, is, that they know that the parents do not acknowledge is, is morally right. Now they're coming home for Thanksgiving. They might even bring their partner home for Thanksgiving. So what do you do as a parent? How do you show them unconditional love, show them grace, but also let them understand that you have not compromised on your values? It's, well, that's a very complicated question. And really, in many ways, the details of it would need uh, personal conversation. But let me just make some general observations. You used the term unconditional love, and I believe that has to be our attitude of heart. If someone moved in next door to you and you wanted to be, uh, you wanted to be a missionary, uh, and they were uh, not living in an appropriate arrangement, you would not shun them. Uh, in fact, you might invite them to your home for dinner. And so I think we have to. It's. It's difficult when it's personal. Like our brother said, when something's personal, it's very hard. We take it personally. We, we're offended by it. And we, we feel that if we, if, we, uh, if we extend unconditional love, that we're going to, uh, they're going to think, we think this is okay. And I always think of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, because he did something amazing. He said the law keepers were a brood of vipers, and he went and ate with the publicans and sinners. Why did he do that? He, he, had, uh, he had a motive. It was unconditional love, and he had an agenda. It was the gospel. And I think with our children, even though it's painful and difficult, we need to extend unconditional love. It, they know what we stand for. We don't have to have a placard when they walk in the door. We believe that you're living in sin. <laughs> we, they know what we stand for. We want to be like Christ. We want to extend unconditional love so that we have the right to speak, so that as we have opportunity and we make opportunity graciously, lovingly, with sensitivity, but we make opportunity to uh, speak into their lives. We will, we will be able to do that if they are assured, I love you and I'm committed to you no matter what. No one loves you like I do. Uh, because that's what Christ has done for us. So I think uh, 
the other details, the specific details like sleeping arrangements and so forth, that gets into a trickier area. Personally, I would not allow un an unmarried couple or uh, um, a same-sex couple to, I wouldn't give them a room. I would be very hospitable and offer them separate rooms. But there are those kinds of issues, I think, that you would need to think through and talk through with, with your pastor or someone who could give good counsel. No, that's very true. Um, you, you have to set the standard of what your standards are so that they're able to rise to where, they, where you are so that they can understand that. Our kids understood that very clearly, and it wasn't something that they attempted to break, you know, try to sneak around, those kind of things. So it was very clearly established. Friends come or girlfriend, boyfriend comes, separate rooms, that's the way it goes. But the other thing I just want to respond to, many times a parent like yourself with older ones, and you see them making decisions that are not according to where you brought them up in, the key thing is people come to me and say, where did I go wrong? I was not good at what I did. I was, a, I was not a good parent. Obviously, I did something wrong. And that's self-guilt that you put on yourself. And it's not necessary, because you don't have control over them when they're outside your house. But when they come in your house, that's where the standard rests. And that's when you can embrace them accordingly. Yeah, Ted, I wanted to ask you specifically because I think in our culture today, we've redefined love as doing, do, letting me do whatever I want and loving me the way I am and respecting my choices and, and really, and really um, approving of my choices. But that's not a biblical definition of love, and that's not the love we're supposed to have for our children. Nor is it a freedom. No. <laughs> yeah, I, <clears throat> I think you put that well, Adam. I think that uh, we, we can love somebody and, and uh, still disagree with their lifestyle choices. And we can make that clear without being unkind or ungracious and still, as Margaret said, being very hospitable and loving, doing anything we can do legitimately to help them. Um, I, I think maybe some of you have heard the story of uh, Rosario Butterfield and her book, The Un Unexpected Con Convert or whatever. Yeah, but she, you know, she was a... a uh, women's studies uh, person at I think the University of Rochester uh, living in a committed uh, gay relationship and uh, she wrote a letter to the newspaper about how Christians had uh, spoken derisively of gay people and this pastor and his wife Ken Smith and his wife they sent her a letter and welcomed her to come and visit with them have a meal with them and over the course of years, they loved that woman to Christ. And she's now married with children and uh, in a heterosexual marriage and has uh, completely abandoned that lifestyle. But it, she was won by uh, gracious people who offered hospitality and love in Christ's name without compromising their standards, as James just said. So I think that that's the dance that's hard to do sometimes we might make mistakes sometimes, uh, but that unconditional love is so important because that's the way Christ has loved us. If Christ only loved those who are worthy, 
none of us would be loved. But he loves the unworthy. And in fact, it's interesting in that uh, Luke 6 passage, he says, you should be kind to people who are unkind to you and so forth. And he says, uh, then you'll be like Christ who loves the unrighteous and the ungodly. And I think, that's me. Mm -hmm. I've been loved by Christ. So I'm in that category of the unrighteous and the ungodly because those are the ones that he has loved. And uh, I think that's, uh, we want to show that kind of unconditional love. And I appreciate James' words that we don't change our standards. And the fact that your children have grown up and made choices that are different than the choices you would have wanted for them does not mean you've failed. It, you know, there's, uh, they are responding to God. And you know, I talk about that in the book Shepherding. You know, there's this Godward orientation of the heart. You can do the best job of parenting possible and have children turn away from it because they're not automatons. They're choosing, thinking, worshiping people who are deciding to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. And that's not my fault. So I don't have to own that as this is my failure. I can pray for them. And even though I may know I failed, of course I failed. I'm a, I'm a flawed parent. Uh, I always, Margie and I always say that uh, we have three children that are from a dysfunctional home. Uh, you know, we, we're all flawed parents, but uh, uh, you know, th they make choices that are their choices. And uh, th I can leave that with God. Can I add one more thing? Of course. <laughs> okay. Uh, I expand actually on this whole question in It's Not Too Late uh, in the chapter Love As You Have Been Loved. But uh, if we're loving our children like Christ loved us, we can appeal to them about our standards in ways they can receive. And I've talked to many parents who have done that, who've said, you know, you know I love you. You know that I'm committed to you. But this is what this is where my convictions lie. This is what I believe God calls me to. And so I'm asking you to respect that when you're in my home. And when a child feels loved, they give in to that, unless there's a, a, a huge problem that needs to be resolved anyway. Children, children do give in to that. But love just paves the way, and that's because it's God's way. Such great words and a reminder and what our heartbeat here is that you are a gospel ambassador in your family. And I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who writes in Philippians 3 that he looked at his trials as opportunities to be conformed into the image of Christ, to be joined with him in his suffering so that in, in every way possible he might join with Christ in his resurrection. If we want to have a transformed life, you should expect trials and there's an opportunity for you to love somebody as Christ has loved you and to become more like Christ in that very, in that very action. So it's counted a joy and give thanks to God for those opportunities.